Good morning, everyone. If we could get everyone to come in and have a seat. I don't have a bailiff here to bang the gavel and say your silence is commanded, which is the usual drill. So if everyone would step in, please. Thank you. And good morning. Welcome. I'm Diane Sykes. I'm a judge on the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals here in Chicago. My home state is Wisconsin, and I'm delighted to be with you here at this Federalist Society Student Symposium. I've attended many Federalist Society events over the years, um, but this is only my second student symposium. My first was in 1983. It was the second student symposium held by the Federalist Society. It was at the University of Chicago down the road, and I was a 2L at Marquette Law School. I know there's a group from Marquette here, a much larger group than that year. There was one other student and myself from Marquette who came down to the second student symposium of the Federalist Society, and the topic was judicial activism. The group was much smaller than this one, and it's just uh, wonderful to see such an energized and large group of people here today. So thank you for coming. Our topic for the next oh, hour and 15 minutes or so will be marriage, public policy, and the Constitution, a debate on same-sex marriage. Professors Michael Seidman and Amy Wax are with us to discuss and debate this topic, but before they do, I'd like to briefly sketch the legal landscape on the issue of same-sex marriage. Marriage regulation is a matter of state law, of course, and currently the Supreme Courts of three states have invalidated state marriage licensing requirements that permit only opposite-sex couples to marry. The Supreme Judicial Court of Massachusetts mandated same-sex marriage. The high courts of Vermont and New Jersey left it to their respective state legislatures to adopt either same-sex marriage or its legal equivalent by a different name, civil unions or domestic partnerships. More specifically, in 2003, in Goodrich versus Department of Public Health, the Supreme Judicial Court of Massachusetts held that restricting civil marriage to opposite-sex couples violated the liberty and equality clauses of the Massachusetts Constitution. The court addressed but did not decide whether to apply strict scrutiny. It discussed um, whether the uh, asserted right in question was the narrower right to same-sex marriage or the broader right to marriage in general and didn't ultimately decide that question, holding instead that restricting marriage to its traditional meaning of a union of a man and a woman had no rational basis. The court rejected the Commonwealth's argument that traditional marriage provided the optimal setting for procreation and child-rearing and essentially reformulated the definition of marriage, construing civil marriage to mean the voluntary union of two persons as spouses to the exclusion of all others. The Vermont and New Jersey high courts did not affirmatively redefine marriage in their states. Both courts applied rational basis review and held that their respective state statutes restricting marriage to opposite-sex couples violated the state constitutional guarantees of equal protection. The Vermont Supreme Court in Baker v. State gave the state legislature a reasonable period of time to adopt either same-sex marriage or its legal equivalent. The New Jersey Supreme Court in Lewis v. Harris gave state legislature a deadline of 180 days to do the same. In contrast, the Court of Appeals of New York, that state's highest court, and the Supreme Court of Washington have rejected state constitutional challenges to their laws restricting marriage to opposite-sex couples. The Supreme Court of Hawaii has held that the traditional marriage law in that state should be subjected to strict scrutiny, uh, but while the case was on remand, it had initially been dismissed on the pleadings, the state enacted a constitutional amendment adopting the traditional definition of marriage. 
and many other states have since done the same. The 27 states have adopted constitutional amendments defining marriage as a union between a man and a woman. These amendments vary in the extent to which they prohibit same-sex marriage or prohibit same-sex marriage and any legally equivalent status for same-sex couples. Massachusetts has initiated the constitutional amendment process, which was initially subjected to certain legal and political procedural challenges, but is apparently now moving forward. And the California Supreme Court has accepted review in a case challenging the civil marriage statute in that state. So that, in brief, is the current legal picture. Joining us today to discuss and debate the issue of same-sex marriage are Professors Michael Seidman and Amy Wax. Professor Wax is the Robert Mundheim Professor of Law at the University of Pennsylvania Law School, where she teaches courses in civil procedure, remedies, social welfare, and the law and economics of work and family. Her research focuses on the law, policy, and economics of social welfare. Before joining the Penn Law Faculty, Professor Wax worked from 1988 to 1994 as an assistant to the United States Solicitor General, where she argued 15 cases before the United States Supreme Court. She has also been a professor at the University of Virginia Law School, a neurologist at the Cornell Medical Center in New York, and a law clerk to Judge Abner Mikva of the United States Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia Circuit. She holds a bachelor's degree from Yale, an MD from Harvard Medical School, and a JD from Columbia Law School. Professor Lewis Michael Seidman is the Carmack Waterhouse Professor of Constitutional Law at the Georgetown University Law Center. He teaches constitutional and criminal law and has co-authored a constitutional law casebook. Before joining the Georgetown Law Faculty, Professor Seidman clerked for Judge Skelly Wright of the United States Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia Circuit and Associate Justice Thurgood Marshall of the United States Supreme Court. He has also worked as an attorney in the office of the District of Columbia Public Defender. Uh, Professor Seidman holds a bachelor's degree from the University of Chicago and a JD from Harvard Law School. His latest book, Silence and Freedom, is due out in August. It explores the relationship of the right to silence and individual autonomy, focusing on self-incrimination, confession, tortures, torture, and forced participation in patriotic and other ceremonies. Please join me in welcoming Professor Wax and Seidman. Well, thank you, Judge Sykes, and thank you all for inviting me. Um, I'm very delighted to be here. Uh, I just have to uh, issue a disclaimer uh, off the bat, which is that I've been attacked by a killer virus within the past 24 hours, so I hope my mind will function. I hope my voice will function, and if I have some kind of coughing fit, uh, please forgive me. Uh, so the topic today is uh, the morality of same-sex marriage, and as I see it, uh, marriage as a general matter. Uh, is the issue of same-sex marriage a hard or easy one? I confess that I had not given this question much thought uh, until a friend of mine said something that I found highly provocative. Uh, and I will name names. Uh, my friend was Linda Greenhouse, who is the New York Times Supreme Court reporter, a highly learned, uh, intelligent person, and also a very valued friend, uh, and a card-carrying member of what Margaret Thatcher calls the chattering classes. Um, 
And she said to me one time, uh, by way of just conversation over coffee, uh, there exists not one single, solitary, respectable argument against recognizing and legalizing same-sex marriage. A rather one-sided statement, I would say. Uh, clearly, she has no doubt on the right answer. I listened and nodded sagely, uh, all the while thinking that her stance is against the background of the political fate of same-sex marriage, which has failed to win approval over a number of years, often by very large margins, in every state in which it has been put to a vote, save recently Arizona, where there was already right, a ban on same-sex marriage on the books and the provision for vote was uh, in effect just sort of uh, icing on the cake, shall we say, superfluous. Uh, consider also a, a report by the Pew Research Center for the Public Interest, their annual survey last year called Beyond Red versus Blue, which showed, and if you like to take these large compendiums to bed and sort of peruse them like I do, you will understand that they're a fertile source of interesting data, but it showed that well-educated liberals Right? and they tend to label segment of the populations, which are about 15% of their sample, are distinctly out there on the issue of same-sex marriage. Right? The rest of the population fails to share their view in any way, and this really is distinctive to the issue of same-sex marriage, even abortion shows far more ambivalence and equivocation uh, on the part of the population as a whole. So I decided that I was going to try to understand this curious disparity between the greenhouse view, shall we say, and popular opinion. And greenhouse's view is not peculiar to her, in academic writing, certainly in law, but also in the social sciences, there is a similar lopsidedness and therefore disparity, right? Opinion is overwhelmingly pro-same-sex marriage, both as a matter of right, as a matter of public policy. Virtually nothing is said by scholars in the mainstream against it. Now, to be sure, there are some dissenting voices, Lynn Wardle at BYU, Robbie George at Princeton, but they are in the minority. Right? And then there is sort of the right-wing, serious, non-academic writing, the weekly standard and the like. So we have that. Right? But once again, the liberal establishment dominates here for elite opinion. Right? Finally, the case law is really not very helpful in articulating the position anti as opposed to pro. Now, before I look at what I think might be the best sort of conservative case to be made against recognizing same-sex marriage, I do want to issue a disclaimer. Right? I confess myself to be very ambivalent on this issue. Now, as you can imagine, this marks me out, you know, two standard deviations to the right of most of my colleagues, uh, even to be ambivalent, so I am sort of taking a flyer here, absolutely. Talk about moral courage. Uh, but to me, 
It's not really an open and shut case. Indeed, it is, because it is so very hard, I was particularly uh, amazed uh, that the likes of Linda Greenhouse found it easy. So how do we understand popular opposition? Well, the usual explanation is pure animus, right? Hatred, dislike, disgust of homosexuals and what they do and how they live and the like. I don't buy it. You look out there, go and talk to people in the heartland, you know, actually go out to places like South Bend, Indiana and the like, uh, and you can't believe that hatred can drive something like this. These are not hating people. Religious belief, absolutely. That plays an enormous part in the opposition to recognizing in law same-sex marriage on a par with heterosexual marriage. And I'm not denigrating that. I think that has a role to play, but I'm going to put it to one side because I think if you're trying to win converts or at least get people like my good friend Linda to see that there is another side, you have to make the secular case. So where do we look for a secular case against the recognition of same-sex marriage? Well, a good place to look for such a conservative view, I think, is to the great conservative thinkers. And here I have in mind people like Burke, Oakeshott, Hayek, people that students don't really read much or study much anymore. That's a shame. I ask every year in my civil procedure class how many people have heard of Frederick Hayek, let alone read Frederick Hayek, right? And I have one or two hands, right? One or two hands. I'm actually going to leave Hayek aside because he's basically concerned with economics, although in fact his points are generically relevant. And talk about the ideas that uh, Edmund Burke and Michael Oakeshott share. Right. So what, what are the elements of this idea or the elements of their ideas that might be pertinent here? Well, we start with what I would call a theory of collective human wisdom or intellect, collective human moral wisdom, that the knowledge and experience over generations of the people as a whole, of cultures, which are embodied in certain institutions, traditions, and customary practices, deserve a kind of presumption, a presumption of validity, of wisdom, and of usefulness. Right? That presumption is not irrebuttable, but it is a kind of attitude uh, to which we come to these, these practices. Right? They have evolved over time, merged in human societies, uh, because they have been useful and successful. It's almost like a Darwinian theory, I will admit. And marriage is arguably uh, one such institution. Now, a corollary of that is a suspiciousness, a mistrust of pure reason or rationality either is exercised by individuals or by contemporary groups as a way to judge social institutions, right? The notion that we can all sit around and as an exercise in social engineering, 
invent a better mousetrap than the one that custom and practice has given us, right? Starting, just sweeping everything away and starting from first abstract principles, right? These thinkers say no. The law of unintended consequences means that all sorts of bad consequences, bad ramifications will not be anticipated. You will do worse this way. Now, this uh, sort of evolutionary theory of collective human intellect and mistrust of pure reason goes with a particular theory of morality and embodies a particular theory of morality. Right? Which is that morality is not a matter of the exercise of abstract reason, a sort of Kantian uh, uh, ideal, but cultivating workable habits and wise practices in everyday life. And those may not be, may not rigorously conform to certain principles. There not, may not be a perfect internal consistency to those practices. We could perhaps poke at them and fault them. Some of them seem silly, some of them seem arbitrary, right? But there they are. Now, attendant to that is a particular view of the moral role of social institutions. And here, I think, is where students really find the idea novel because they've never been presented with this idea, right? Here's the idea. Social institutions like marriage are essential to the practice of a moral life by ordinary individuals. Okay. What do I mean by that? Well, ordinary individuals, and here I count all of us, right? although we are at the right tail of the bell curve, IQ-wise and accomplishment-wise, it's really just a matter of degree how infirm and imperfect and really fundamentally stupid we are. Right? about morality and the rules that should govern us, right? Essentially, right, here's the role of an institution like marriage. It's a heuristic. It's a guide. It embodies a set of precepts, a set of guidelines, right? A script that says, Here's the ideal of how you ought to behave towards others in your immediate circle, your wife, your in-laws, your parents, your children. If you embody the ideal husband, the ideal wife, if you go by the script, if you stick to the script, you can't go too far wrong, right? And it relieves you of sort of having to figure it all out from scratch. Because the fact is, you're not capable of doing that. Okay? So the notion of institutions like marriage as moral heuristics, that's key, I think, to the understanding of the place of marriage in the modern world from the conservative side. Now, how does that contrast with the understanding that I think most of you have been peddled uh, during the course of your education and that pervades our popular and even our elite culture. I think the idea of marriage, and here I'm also speaking about all elements of sexual morality and so-called private conduct, right? What we carve out to be in this realm of private conduct. Right? This is just a matter of taste. You know, it's the lifestyle that we think best for us. 
We're picking from a Chinese menu of options. We make our own decisions based on our own priorities, our own experience, what we think best, right, for our own lives, the trajectory of our own lives, right? And of course, as we know in translation from the Latin par parable, taste cannot be disputed. So we have no basis for a greater collective moral judgment about how people behave in this realm. It's what suits you, what works for you. Now, what is wrong with that, with that idea about sexual conduct, uh, so-called personal uh, matters of sexuality and marriage? Well, according to conservatives, I would think there are two things wrong with it. The first has to do with what we've already talked about a little bit, the infirmity of intellect. But also, as a corollary to that, what I would call the infirmity of will. The infirmity of intellect is just this inability of ordinary mortals and individuals to canvas all the ramifications of their choices in a charged, potentially destructive and passionate realm like sexual behavior, reproduction. Right, which is supposed to be private, but in fact radically affects society and other people. Right? So we can't know how our choices, especially in the aggregate, when a lot of people start making them, and here of course there are collective effects and tipping effects that are quite obscure, quite difficult to get at, right? that we cannot really fathom. The second is the infirmity of will. And what does the infirmity of will have to do with it? Well, here's my question. What is morality for? One suggestion. Morality is a code that develops in a particular arena of human action that is designed to restrain individuals who would ordinarily act in self-regarding and other destructive ways, right? It's, it's really a code designed to restrain potentially socially harmful selfishness. That's actually a very kind of Darwinian or uh, evolutionary psychological view of morality. It happens to be one that I believe. Um, so what does that have to do with marriage, with sex, right? Sex, sexual conduct is a ripe arena for the exploitation of others, the harm of others. And I think that that is something that in a way we have forgotten uh, in modern society because we don't want to think about it. We want to think about it as a matter of taste and also because we are a free society, we are a tolerant society. Uh, and we don't really want a sort of overweening exercise of collective force, or we don't want an excuse for an overweening exercise of collective force. Right? But the fact still remains. Right? In reproductive choices, in the conduct towards people of, with whom we have love affairs and the like, uh, the potential to hurt those people is enormous. Right. So this idea that we're each moral innovators who get to make up the rules as we go along, change the established institutions anytime we feel like it, in any ways we happen to think advisable in the short term, 
right? Well, who's to say we're not going to change them in ways that are selfish and self-regarding and harmful to others? There's no check on that. There's no natural check on destructive. I would say that conservatives are deeply mistrustful of moral innovation for that very reason. Okay? So what does this all this nonsense have to do with same-sex marriage? Right? Well, same-sex marriage may or may not be a good idea, and it may or may not be an inevitable development. But I think that conservatives are certainly wary right, of kind of plunging in. They are worried about the potentially destructive uh, effects of radically changing the definition of marriage in ways that leave people without the kind of clear guidance of what marriage is about and how people ought to behave that they need as a heuristic, right, to get it right, more or less, shall we say, right? They are worried about the unintended consequences. And I think just, and I will not take much more time here, I'm going to sort of give a parallel example of a similar social development that I think uh, is analogous, uh, where time and data have shown us that our optimistic predictions uh, turned out to be incorrect. And then I'm going to just briefly mention three ambiguities that I think same-sex marriage introduces into the practice of marriage that are causes for concern. The parallel example is that of single motherhood. Right? Uh, we now have a good 40 years of experience with a skyrocketing rate of single motherhood in this country, which stands at uh, inching up to almost 40%. In some communities, 90 plus percent. It's very, very divided by social class. So the people you and I know, it's actually a rarity, it turns out. Right? White women with a college degree, only about 3% of the babies born to white women with a college degree in the mid-2000s were out of wedlock. An astonishing figure, uh, considering that this is supposed to be this gangbuster social trend, right? Not is the answer. But what sociologists have seen, and there's a broad consensus about this, if you read demography, you know, which I do, I, it's one of the things I take to bed with me, uh, you will be amazed, people at Princeton and all these ooey-gooey left-wing institutions, they all agree that children from a co-biological family, that is biological mother and father, who spend 18 years in that traditional unit, you control for all the stuff like income and parental education, they do better on every measure, every measure. This is the gold standard. Okay, the collective wisdom has been born out. And all they're doing is arguing about why, right? They have different theories about it. Okay. So we now know that single motherhood has not been such a great thing, and in some communities it's an out-and-out -out disaster, I'm not reluctant to say. But we had to do the social experiment to discover that, right? We had to let the genie out of the bottle because there was no other way to see what would happen. And I think this is a one-way ratchet that operates against traditional norms, 
right? Which is traditional norms can't prove themselves in our rational world. And of course, we have to have a world that's sort of rational and demands reasons up to a point. That's the only way we can really live together in a democratic society with democratic discourse. And I think that there is a built-in structural uh, deficit or, or presumption against traditional values in a society like that. Okay, I'm going over time, so let me say three ambiguities in same-sex relationships that I think are potentially troubling, not necessarily dispositive. One is the procreative function, and the courts talk about this as a rationale for preserving heterosexual marriage as the exclusive sort of gold standard that we hold up. Now, here's the thing about same-sex relationships. When same-sex relationships create a family, it's always, at best, a blended family, okay? A same-sex relationship can never meet that gold standard of two biological parents related to the child, that golden triangle, right, which is the central social glue. Now, you'd say, well, there are lots of blended families out there, and some of them do quite well. But as I say to people when they raise their hand and tell me that, when I go around giving talks, I say, that's anecdata. Congratulations that your blended family has done so well. You've beat the odds. Good for you. But it's not about you. It's about broad social trends. Okay? Turns out blended families do really badly. Heterosexual blended families, step-parent families are a mess. The children in step-parent families, step-father families, where the child is not biologically related to the stepfather, are very troubled. They're as troubled as single-parent children. Once again, the demographers are arguing about why. I can talk a little bit more about what some of the theories are. Homosexual families, by definition, are going to be blended families. Maybe they will escape some of the problems of heterosexual blended families. There are reasons to think they might but then there are reasons to think they might not. Okay? So we're going to unleash a whole new set of families on the world that are blended. The role of sex in defining marriage. And here I'll just suggest something. I went to a conference where one of the questions raised was, what's going to happen to the concept of annulment for same-sex marriage? In heterosexual marriage, it's failure to consummate. Is that just a hoary relic that we ought to get rid of? as a defining element of marriage. Well, if we do, what's to stop you from marrying your brother or your uncle or your, you know, your dog or any old person, your best friend? I mean, we do have a kind of slippery slope element here that we're going to have to deal with. Third, the role of sexual fidelity in marriage. Now, sexual fidelity has also always been a defining feature of Western monogamy, okay, often honored in the breach rather than the observance, but obeisance is paid to it. It's one thing to sort of lapse. It's another to disavow, right? Now, there are, I think, segments of our society that have even just disavowed sexual fidelity as a value, and that's unfortunate. But many people still think of marriage as a matter of as sexual fidelity as the primary duty of marriage. But how do homosexuals feel about it? Well, the bottom line is they're cagey about it. 
Andrew Sullivan is emblematic, and I have great respect for Andrew Sullivan. When asked point blank, he sort of ducks and weaves. No, you know, homosexuality has always been defined in contradistinction to all the restraints and oppressions of, and, and the disciplines of heterosexual marriage, one of which is the avowed discipline of sexual exclusivity. Anybody who's been married a very, very long time knows that, right? It's not necessarily easy. For a long time, the homosexual community saw promiscuity as a liberation and a release. Is that still how they feel about it? And if, if they still do feel about it that way, is that attitude somehow going to become imported into and somehow subtly subvert what is already, I think, being subverted, which is a certain idea about what marriage requires. Okay, thank you. Thank you, Judge, for that introduction. Um, uh, thank you, Amy, for that talk. Amy and I are good friends, and I, I hope we still will be when we're finished here. Um, I'm actually uh, not going to say anything now about what Amy said. I'll say something about that in my rebuttal, but first I'd like to uh, uh, get my own views on the table. Um, I want to start with something that may seem like a concession, but I think it actually turns out not to be much of one. So the concession is this. Uh, I think that uh, Justice Scalia, in his Lawrence opinion, is absolutely right when he says that a holding that the Constitution protects gay sex and by extension gay marriage uh, implicates contestable moral views. Um, now, the reason why that's not much of a concession is because a holding that the Constitution does not protect gay sex and marriage also implicates contestable moral views. Uh, courts are therefore, in my judgment, stuck with uh, taking a moral view of the question whichever way they rule on it. Um, and that fact makes the problem of gay rights no different from um, any other case involving the Equal Protection Clause. Now, the argument for that proposition is complicated, and I'm going to spend very little time on it here, uh, in part because I'm fortunate to be able just to incorporate by reference uh, a lot of what Michael Moore said earlier this morning, uh, and, because, and in part because that's not really what I want to talk about. But I do want to just set out the argument in a very brief form, and the argument goes like this. Uh, the Equal Protection Clause requires us to treat two people alike to the extent they are alike, but it also permits and perhaps requires that we treat them differently to the extent that they are different. The trouble is that in this case, as in every equal protection case, the people or things that we're comparing are alike and different in an infinite number of respects. So gay marriage is like straight marriage in some ways, but unlike it in some other pretty obvious ways. And there's no way to evaluate whether we should concentrate on the similarities 
or the differences except by making a moral judgment. I'm already waiting for Professor Gralia's uh, uh, question in response to what I'm saying now. Um, so some people conclude from this fact that therefore the matter should be left to the vagaries of the political process, but that is a non sequitur. Uh, if we're going to say that the Equal Protection Clause doesn't apply whenever it rests on moral judgments, then the Equal Protection Clause would never apply because it always rests on moral judgments, and not ever applying it itself reflects a moral judgment, which is a judgment to disregard the constitutional text, which says that it ought to apply. Now, other people say that we should be committed to the moral judgments of the framers. But the Equal Protection Clause commits us to equality, not to the framers' rather strange view of what equality consists of. If we were committed to the latter view, we would also be committed to the constitutionality of segregated schools, to statutes that prohibit women from practicing law, uh, and indeed to laws that ban not just the marriage between um, that, that limit marriage not just to uh, arrangements between two men and two women, but also that prohibit the marriage of a black man to a white woman. So what we're left with then, I think, is the inevitability of making contestable moral judgments. And so what I want to spend the rest of my time on is making a moral argument for gay sex and gay marriage. Um, and because I don't have all that much time, I want to say this is a sketch of an argument. Uh, if I were writing a law review article, it would be in much more detail, but I think I can lay out the basic elements of such an argument. So my starting point um, is the observation, and here I think Amy and I are just temperamentally at odds. Um, it's the observation that there is a tremendous amount of damage done by the insistence that all of us lead our personal lives according to scripts that work for some of us but don't work for all of us. Personal lives are complicated and some of them don't fit into the preformed ways that our society um, has, has dictated. And as much as people would like to, to, to conform to those preformed ways, they'd really like to, um, but the fact is, for one reason or another, they just can't. Their lives just are not structured that way. And trying to make them, make them fit causes a lot of severe and unnecessary unhappiness. Um, and therefore, it is a good for society to provide a variety of different scripts for people to select based on what does work. Uh, contrary to what some opponents of gay marriage claim, that doesn't mean that anything goes. It doesn't mean there's an infinite variety of scripts. Um, it certainly doesn't mean that individual self-indulgence ought to count more than the com uh, commitment to the community. Uh, instead, it claims no more than that people should not be subjected to needless misery just because social arrangements that don't work for them happen to work for some other people. So that's the first proposition I want to assert. The second strand of my argument is gay sex is a good. Um, it's a good because sex, it is a subcategory sub of sex, and sex is a good. Okay, so why is sex a good? Well, first it's a good because it's pleasurable. 
and importantly, and this is an important qualification, holding everything else constant, pleasurable activity is a good. And to that extent, by the way, I would go quite a far way down the road of horribles that Justice Scalia outlines in Lawrence. So it's not just gay sex, but also masturbation, uh, anonymous sex. These are also prima facie goods because they produce pleasure. Now, I want to emphasize that's only a prima facie judgment. Pleasure at another's expense is not a good. So, for example, I take prostitution to be a much closer case. I'm not exactly sure how I come out on it, but it's complicated because uh, there is a risk of exploitation, which may not be present in other forms of sex. Um, moreover, unlike masturbation, sex with another person, even an anonymous person, is a good because it is a pleasure that is achieved or heightened by providing pleasure to someone else. And that strikes me also as a good in itself. Uh, and it's not just any kind of pleasure either. It's a pleasure that comes from a linking of the physical with the mental that I think is crucial to our sense of ourselves and to our mental health. So one has a heightened awareness that my body belongs to me and that it's something that I'm getting pleasure from, this body that is mine and I'm getting it um, while I'm giving pleasure to this body that is hers. Um, and that is a good. Now what I've said so far is true even of casual sex, um, and oddly enough, it's precisely that kind of casual sex that Lawrence supports. Um, one would think that conservatives like Amy would be deeply upset by a Supreme Court holding that casual sex is constitutionally protected while implying that long-term committed unions are not. But that's exactly what the Supreme Court did in Lawrence. In effect, it constitutionalized the one-night stand. Um, now, although the Supreme Court has not yet said so, I think we ought to move beyond casual sex um, and talk about sex between people who care about each other and are committed to each other, and surely that is a good. Um, in addition to the other reasons why sex is a good, sex within that sort of a relationship involves intimacy, it involves trust, in the most literal and the most figurative sense, it involves connection, and I take those to be goods. Um, now, let me say that's not, I'm not claiming that all sex is good. I'm not claiming that sex is only good. Uh, there is obviously a dark side to sex. Uh, it can also be about power, submission, and hatred. It can be addictive and dangerous. It sometimes destroys people's lives. But if sex is at least partially a good, then I also want to argue that gay sex is especially good. Um, and it's especially good because it provides a model for us for what sex might be like if it were disconnected from pervasive gender hierarchies. Now, I want to, I'm sorry, I'm being dead serious about this. Um, I, want to, I want to qualify that in some ways. Um, um, I'm not making the ridiculous charge that all cases of heterosexual sex is rape. I don't believe that. I think that's silly. I know my wife doesn't believe it. Um, um, it is true, though, 
that all cases of heterosexual intercourse are, compli are complicated by the existence of gender hierarchy. And that makes the Sex Act and the events leading up to the Sex Act much more freighted and difficult than they would be if they did not map onto this gender hierarchy. Uh, by the way, I'm also not claiming that all cases of homosexual intercourse are free from exploitation, dominance, submission, exercise of power, and so on. That would also be a ridiculous claim. Uh, indeed, to some extent, some gay relationships are infected by the pathologies of straight relationships. So even in gay relationships, it may make a difference who's on top and who's on the bottom. But in the case of gay relationships, those problems are not directly mapped onto gender hierarchies in the way they are with straight relationships, and that to some degree makes the gay relationships freer. Um, I have a sort of anecdote that I think illustrates this much better than any argument. I don't know what things are like in the various law schools that you attend, but at Georgetown Law Center, um, it's come to the point where you almost can't conduct a class because there were 15 announcements that students make before the class. So uh, one time several years ago um, on Valentine's Day, um, this student comes up um, and he wants to make an announcement and although I would not normally make this observation for reasons that will become clear, um, it's important uh, to emphasize that this young man is what um, my kids call hot. Okay, he was very good looking, and he comes out and uh, he says, uh, today is Valentine's Day and we're raising money for some good cause, God knows what it was, and what we're doing is, um, we're, we will, we're prepared to send flowers to any member of the law school community, you donate $15 to this, or whatever, to this cause, and we'll send flowers to this person, and you just select whoever you want. Um, now, there was a young man in this class who was uh, gay and uh, emphatically out of the closet. And this young man is, was, was sitting in the front row. He raises his hand. Yes? You say you'll deliver flowers to just anybody we choose? That's right, anybody you choose. And what do we have to tell you in order to get the flowers delivered to this person? All you have to give us is your name, is the person's name. What's your name? <laughs> At which point, everybody laughed, and then everybody applauded. Okay, now let's just sort of change the facts of the story a little. Suppose that um, the person in the front of the room was not a man, but a woman, a really good-looking woman, and suppose the student in the front row is a straight man who says that. Do you think everybody would have laughed? I don't think so. I think uh, there would have been delegations to the dean's office. Um, uh, as appropriately there should have been, because that is, uh, because that kind of comment map, maps on to differences in power onto a gender hierarchy that's not true of gay sex. Um, now, is the argument I've just made an argument that would convince somebody like John Finnis or Jerry Falwell or, I'm not linking her to those people, but Amy Wax? Um, I, 
I don't think so. I'd be, it would be quite neat if Amy now got up and said, you know, I'd never thought of it that way, and you're just right. But I don't think, I don't think that's going to happen. Um, I hope what I've said uh, might move some of you, uh, but I'm under no illusions that many people are going to change their minds about this. Um, the fact is, we live in a world of moral plurality, and I do agree with this much about what Amy said. It does not advance civil discourse about this to pretend that other people's arguments are just off the table or just bigoted. I mean, we do have to uh, come to grips with them and take them seriously. That's why, after all, I'm here. Um, but if anybody expects constitutional law to provide an Archimedean point that allows some sort of entirely neutral balancing of moral and constitutional values, then I think they're bound to be disappointed. It just doesn't work that way. Um, so um, what I'm left saying, I think, and the only thing I ultimately want to say is that there is a moral case for gay sex and gay marriage. I am persuaded by that case. I'm willing to, as Michael Moore suggested, we all ought to be and judges ought to be. I'm willing to stand up here and take moral responsibility for making that moral case, even in front of an audience where a lot of people uh, laugh at it, uh, because I think uh, the case is right. Um, and then I want to say, for those of you who are persuaded that there is a moral case for uh, gay sex and gay marriage, you should not be ashamed of claiming that just because there is that moral case, therefore there is a constitutional case as well. Thanks. Now we'll have a few words of rebuttal before we entertain questions. Yeah, so there's so much to say, but I'll restrain myself here. First, I should say that it uh, just shows how Mike and I may not be operating in the same universe. I would have said, I like red roses. Thank you. Uh, bring it on. Here's Mike. certainly, and I don't think the small C conservatives, the, the strand of conservatism that I am talking about here, really has any interest in sort of stamping out gay sex, uh, you know, uh, persecuting and penalizing gay sex. One word that did not appear in uh, Mike Seidman's talk is the word children, right? It, it, it's, all about, uh, it's all about me, the people in the relationship. But really, marriage is fundamentally about the reproduction of society, the continuation of our culture, our polity, our civilization. So, you know, that, that just changes the terms of the debate. There is a lack of recognition of the notion of a channeling function in social life. Right? And this is where I think the current zeitgeist and conservatives really do part ways. Um, this notion of sort of holding out, endorsing this ideal, the gold standard relationship, marriage, to try and encourage people to, to enter into that relationship does not entail uh, that we can't have people sort of living their own lives in ways that I'm going to label, and I, this is a provocative word, deviant. I think that conservatives have a place for deviance in the sense of irregularities in the ways that we 
choose to live our lives based on our own circumstances, experience, and preferences, recognizing that we should be free to be tolerated to do that without outright oppression, but not necessarily uh, sort of overtly patted on the back and encouraged. There is a flattening of the moral landscape, I think, in this kind of liberal left-wing thought, which is that if something is in any way desirable, we have to put our imprimatur on it and put it on a par with everything else. Or in the alternative, if we decide that it's hateful or bad or harmful, we need to wipe it out, right? So there's only two possibilities. There isn't this kind of nuanced, graduated social response that sees the core practice and then potentially other practices on the periphery, which of course we allow, we tolerate, perhaps we put a little bit of social distance between ourselves and individuals just to sort of signal our ambivalence, uh, but we don't uh, put people in jail or put them in stocks or the like. So I, I think that that, that idea Right? that there might be a graduated social response with a core of endorsement channeling and a periphery of tolerance and variation as befits a free society in which none of us can be altogether too sure that we are right. That, that interesting moral landscape is one that I think we find uh, very foreign. Thank you. So first, um, next time we see each other, I'll be sure to have some red roses for you. <laughs> um, just on, on Amy's, I, I want to make three points. Uh, first, on Amy's last point, um, again, it does seem very odd to me that, that somebody who is a small state conservative um, would say that the right way we want to come out is to allow and not in any way uh, uh, discourage or prosecute casual gay sex and not permit people to enter into a deeply conservative institution uh, involving commitment and love uh, like marriage. Uh, a second thing, and, and here I'm going to go on a little longer, um, there's something that's quite frustrating about Amy's position, or at least about much of what she said. Instead of offering a defense for the position, what she offers, I think, is an argument that she has no need to provide a defense. So we could have an argument about the pros and cons of gay marriage, but I understand Amy's Burkean position to be um, because of limits of human reason, she doesn't have to defend her position and she doesn't have to response, respond to my attack. It's enough that um, there's this tradition out there um, that uh, doesn't require defense because the limits of human reason mean we can't really have an argument about it. Well, apart from my other objections to this, it, it assumes that marriage, in fact, is a fixed tradition in our society. That overlooks a tremendous amount of uh, history, some of it quite recent. So marriage, in fact, has changed dramatically. Um, it's not so long ago that there was no such thing as a uh, um, um, a romantic marriage or, or, or a companionate marriage. Um, I remember, I guess I'm, I know I'm getting very old, but I remember the time when uh, interracial marriage was taboo, when it was thought that there was a long tradition, um, a fixed tradition of people not marrying uh, people of different races. Um, birth control 
um, has entirely changed the nature of marriage. Um, um, it's, it's just not the same thing it was before there was birth control. Um, as Amy well knows, um, if we go back um, not so far, the nature of uh, Justice Bradley just asserted it is entirely uncontroversial. The nature of marriage was such that Amy Wax could not be up here right now because it was the place and function of women to be in the home. Now, are we really to say that all of those traditions, which seem quite fixed, um, are entitled to respect and the gee whiz, it was just a, a, a mistake to, uh, because who knows what would happen once we let Amy Wax up here, that it's a mistake to uh, ch uh, challenge traditions like that. The fact is that it requires exercises of reason to decide um, which traditions we're going to follow and which we're not. Okay, final point. Um, Amy constantly uses words like self-regarding, selfish exploitation. I don't know what she's talking about. That's not the activity that my gay friends engage in, uh, um, or at least not more of them than uh, straight friends. Uh, there are people who are exploitive, who are gay and straight and, and uh, everything else. The only thing that I've heard really is an argument at all here um, is an argument about children. Um, and so now let me mention children, okay? We, we can start with this. Um, there's not, as Amy knows, and, and as she said, there's not a lot of good evidence one way or the other about this, but to the extent that there is evidence, what the evidence suggests is that the children of gay couples do just as well, if not better, than the children of straight couples. Now, how does Amy meet that objection? Well, it's really very strange if you think about it. She, she says, look, there's all this problem that's going on with heterosexual blended families. And because there's this problem with heterosexual families, you might say, therefore we should ban heterosexual blended families. But no, she says, because of the problems with the heterosexuals, we should prohibit uh, gay marriage. Now that, um, that requires, um, um, that's quite a stretch, it seems to me, especially because many of the problems with heterosexual blended families aren't present with gay families. For example, uh, heterosexual families uh, uh, typically involve kids who've been subject to the trauma of um, divorce or adoption, um, which uh, will often not be the case in, in homosexual families. But look, if we're really worried about children, then let's start where the problem is, right? So why don't we have a law that prohibits people who are guilty of child abuse um, from marrying? Uh, why don't we have, who've been convicted of child abuse, why don't we have a law that prohibits uh, people who don't have enough money to support their families from marrying? Why don't we have a law that prohibits crack addicts from marrying? When we pass all those laws, then it'll be time enough to get around to perfectly ordinary, loving people who want to get married and raise children in a loving and supportive environment, but happen to be gay. All right, thank you very much. It's now time to move to your questions, if you would step forward. Oh. That means the I whole audience, the right? I direct traffic. <laughs> could have your attention, please. I'm going to step outside of my usual role and not ask any questions. Go ahead, Dennis. 
Dennis Murashko, Northwestern Law School. The question is for Professor Seidman. It seems to me that one can take all of your arguments about the good that is the gay sex and to, to say that that's the standard, and I, and I do mean that seriously, and one can reject all of Professor Wax's arguments about tradition and still choose to regulate against same-sex marriage strictly because of that gold standard. And you haven't responded to that part of the Professor Wax's presentation, and I'm wondering if you have a response. I, I, I thought I just responded to it. I, I don't know what you mean by the gold standard, um, and, unless you're talking about raising kids. By the gold standard, I, I simply meant the institute, the triangle that she described as we have the people of the opposite sex, and whether or not they're raising children, with society might say that's the good that we're trying to promote. Well, Again, not because of tradition, but simply because so, of... So that, that really does beg the question. I, it's not clear to me at all why that's the, the good that society ought to be trying to promote. Um, uh, somebody, it, it's a little historical perspective is worthwhile here. Somebody might have said, um, again, within my lifetime, you know, the gold standard is marriage between uh, people of the same race uh, and, not, and not to have uh, race mixing. And yes, yeah, sure, some of that goes on, but we really want to discourage it. What I, what I would say the gold standard of marriage is, um, um, is two people uh, who make a commitment to each other to live their lives together um, with love and support. That's the gold standard of marriage. There are plenty of, uh, of heterosexual couples who don't meet that standard. There are plenty of homosexual couples who do. Um, and, and, and that's the standard that I would hold marriage to. Professor Wax? Uh, yeah, I, I mean, it's, it's very hard, I think, to make out the, the right kind of argument for this gold standard triangle, right? The co-biological tie, the sort of biology that ties three people together. Because there is this attitude out there, you know, love makes a family. And we can just make any family we want, mix and match, and, and make it good if the will is there to make it good. And as an anecdotal matter, sure, we can all point to a family here, family there, uh, that, that, you know, is, is great, but we're here uh, sort of looking at custom and practice for the entire society. And time has, and experience has confirmed that there is uh, a lot of vigor to this gold standard, the ancient wisdom. Uh, is correct. Does that mean we're going to forcefully stamp out everything else? No, but we don't need to put our positive and premature on a new form, right, uh, which will move us away from that. That's all I'm saying. And, and, you know, as a matter of sort of equality and non-discrimination, can I justify that? But that's the whole point. If we enshrine equality and non-discrimination as the sole test, the jig is up, right? There will be same-sex marriage, period. All right, this side. Uh, good morning. My name is Ronald Ramo, uh, Torah Law School, uh, Central Islip, New York. My question, it's a two-part question. The first part is, do you believe um, the sorry, marriage who, license... Who is the question addressed to? Pardon me? Who is the question addressed to? To both members of the okay. panel. The, the question is, uh, do you believe marriage to be... Uh, a positive right, and then independent of the first question, whether government should remove itself from the regulation of marriage. Hmm. Who go first? Do you want to? I'm, I'm not sure what you mean by a positive, positive right, right in this context. An affirmative right, that it's something 
that people are entitled government to give them as opposed to a negative right, which is the prohibition on government to do an act against the person? Well, um, I, it seems to me the distinction between a positive and negative right is really slippery here. Right. So you could you could characterize the right to marriage as a positive right in the sense that the government extends uh, certain benefits to married people. Um, or you could characterize it as a negative right in, in the sense that the government doesn't stand in the way of people getting married. I don't know that for me much turns on that. Um, the answer to your second question is I'm not sure. And I um, well, I'm not sure. Uh, you know, here's the irony. I mean, marriage, the right to marry, to the extent that the court recognizes it selectively, uh, is seen as part of a liberty interest, as, as a negative right. And I think that's because it's very much caught up with a, a natural law tradition of pre-political uh, rights of man to, you know, marry, start a family. And this, this is a set of ideas that I think we are a little bit uneasy about. We don't completely understand in, in modern day society. So I, I really feel this is, it would be hard for me to address this in any kind of comprehensive way. I take as given, you know, the Supreme Court's or the court's recognition uh, that there is this kind of liberty right, certainly for heterosexuals, to marry. And, you know, even people who maybe shouldn't marry, we, they get the presumption. Um, should, should the state get out of the marriage business? Uh, maybe if we were writing on a clean slate, uh, we would, and we'd leave it to custom, right, and practice. And I think that's very important because there are sort of customary mores that play themselves out informally in society that do regulate this kind of behavior used to and regulates it less and less because we have enshrined sort of non-judgmentalism as the ultimate value uh, and, and tolerance above all as the ultimate value so we can't really rely on informal mores as much as we used to but as a small c conservative I would say you know, we've got it, it's here, to just abolish it would be this radical change, and heaven only knows, you know, what the effects would be. So I, I would say probably just leave it alone. All right, this side. Professor Wax, I wanted to press you a little bit on your example of single motherhood, the comparison, because it seems to me that with no fault, sorry, I'm Evan Bear from Yale. Um, it seems to me that with no fault divorce, the institution of marriage into which everyone entered was substantively changed because the requirements for exit were altered for all the participants, all the members of that institution. But if same-sex marriage is created, it is not the case that it is a new institution which heterosexual couples would have the choice to enter this newer, lesser institution. They would still enter the same institution that is heterosexual marriage. So the question is, how does the marriage of Jim and Steve in San Francisco impact the marriage of Jim and Jane in South Bend if the standards and requirements for entry and exit for them as heterosexuals have not been substantively altered. Right. I mean, and that sort of is the question, right? And if you look at Judge Kay's opinion in Hernandez v. Robles, she sort of comes out and asks that question. She says, uh, there are enough marriage licenses to go around. So how does the fact that Mr. X and Mr. Y get married in Laguna Beach affect you in you know, Boise, Idaho, it's just uh, there's no social theory. Sociology seems to run out when we try to have this, this discussion. Uh, and, you know, I guess I would go back to what I said in my talk, which is when you have a new infusion of 
a whole new group, which is, you know, homosexuals. Uh, and I'll go back to the particular example I gave, uh, who come out of a tradition of their own, of a sort of open relationships, a different public stance towards sexual promiscuity. I'm going to just give that as a concrete example. And you bring them into a pre-existing institution, right? Well, that's kind of a wild card. You know, is, is heterosexual marriage going to domesticate them and sort of sway them to its dominant norm? Or are their norms going to infect and affect or potentially subvert heterosexual marriage. You don't know which way it's going to go. I admit I don't know. You know, and I guess the inherent cautiousness of conservatives is maybe we don't want to find out. Can I just say a word about that? It is, it is true that there is a segment of the gay community, I, I think mostly the uh, male gay community, that has uh, favored um, sexual liberation and, and promiscuity. Um, by the way, there were also um, heterosexuals who favored um, um, sexual liberation and promiscuity. It seems that, to me, very odd that one would oppose gay marriage on, the, on that ground. Um, the people who um, uh, favor sexual promiscuity aren't going to get married. Uh, there's no, we're not saying, there's nobody saying gay people are required to get married, right? People who, there is a segment of the gay community that is opposed to gay marriage on just those grounds. Those people aren't going to get married. The people who are going to get married are people who want to use the institution of marriage and the promises that people make to each other in marriages precisely so as to curtail sexual promiscuity. That is not entirely clear, okay? There are people who may want more open, we may want to transform the fundamental meaning of marriage rather than just adopt it wholesale. And once again, I will give you Andrew Sullivan, who, you know, has not been able to bring himself to say, we are going all the way over to the dark side here, or the light side, or the bright side, uh, and becoming like these devoted, we're going to set up the ideal as these devoted heterosexual couples. It's unclear. Yes. Uh, Victor Steinbach, University of Wisconsin. Uh, and uh, my question is mainly to Professor Lax, although I have a little comment first. Um, I, I think you dismissed the Arizona vote a little too quickly and too lightly. Uh, in fact, it was precisely your kind of argument to a large extent that led to that result because it has a substantial retirement community and the procreation argument turned them off. Because uh, basically uh, the argument was that, well, if you're not going to have children, you shouldn't get married. And that's not the kind of argument that the retirement community wanted to hear. And they turned out in large numbers and voted against the uh, measure. But uh, that also leads to the sort of the, my question that um, starts out uh, with the idea that the marriage is really a blend of a social and a religious institution. It's not just a, some kind of a moral 
perspective that's given by uh, the religious institution of marriage. In fact, historically, until about 100 years ago, it really was primarily a social institution that uh, the function of marriage was inheritance, not procreation. Procreation was directly related to inheritance, obviously, but uh, the main reason for marriage and, in fact, church-sanctioned marriage was to establish direct lines, lines of inheritance. And, um, it, and so the it is question, not, yeah, well, we do uh, need to get to the question. Right, the, quest, the, the question is, like, what is, the question is, what, is, what, what, is what exactly is the problem with separating these two uh, issues again, separating the social institution from the religious one? Go ahead. That's a question for her? Male, I mean, you can both answer. I mean. Well, I, I'm not in favor of separate. I mean, I, I think that they should not be separated because I think the procreative and family building function of marriage is, it is broader than just having children. I think we've defined it as this nidus of the sort of isolated nuclear family, mom, pop, and the kids, and that's actually been to our detriment. Um, uh, there's, this, there's this Zulu, you know, phrase, which is, um, I see my enemy and I marry him, right? Marriage is a way of building bridges across whole families. It creates this net and this web of connections and alliances, which is tremendously protective uh, and resilient in our society. And, you know, that is all caught up with procreation. Uh, with relations, with biological relations across the generations, right? Uh, I think we need to take a broader view of, you know, what marriage traditionally is. Um, just one brief comment, you know, yes, time marches on, marriage has evolved, and there's no stopping that. Uh, you know, everybody uses the Trump card of, well, there was coverture, and then, you know, racial uh, marriage was banned, interracial marriage. I mean, there have been all these practices that have faded or gone by the board. I think race is unique because, you know, we fought a war over this. Uh, but leaving aside race, yes, there has been an evolution. The birth control pill was a technological shock, and it radically transformed the nature of heterosexual relationships, and there was nothing we could do about that. Okay? But we had to sort of accommodate to it. The question is, how far you're going to go in accommodating to it. It's a matter of degree. Well, that's small c conservatism, right? It's not grand schemes and principles. It's the messy compromise of day to day, balancing all the sort of different drawbacks and benefits of particular arrangements as they're lived on the ground. Uh, as to uh, Amy's first point, I thought that was a very uh, moving a statement about what at least an ideal for marriage is, this thick interconnection. And so the, the question that naturally arises is why would you want to deny that kind of good uh, to gay people? Um, uh, as to the second point, it seems to me um, the, the biggest change in marriage, um, uh, it's, not, it, it's not gay marriage, it's not intersexual, uh, in, uh, interracial marriage, 
the biggest change in marriage in, in uh, recent history has been um, the, the uh, decline and collapse of the of the separate sphere model. That is to say, a marriage the model of which was uh, women stay at home, men do the work, and uh, the work out of home. And uh, um, uh, so, so I wonder when I hear Amy talking about how, gee, we just want to, the question is how much and how far and do we really, how, when do we want to accommodate and when, do we, when don't we, whether, whether Amy thinks all that was a mistake and whether that was more accommodation than we ought, uh, than we ought to have had. All right, I'm going to keep this going for a few more minutes, even though the red light is on. So everyone, please stay put. But Jean Meyer has an important announcement to make while you're all here. I'll be very brief, but I, I wanted to. Uh, we can we can go we can go. I, oh, I think an extra ten minutes, so that will that that, that will help. Uh, first, of, uh, three things things I want to say. One, uh, if Peter, if you three can come up, I want all of you, your your suit. Pete, uh, you guys, come up here one sec. Uh, I want, for, for all of you, all the students who work with us, I, I want to have you make sure you know and can find the, 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 the people you've been working with. Peter, Peter Redpath, you've all worked with, Lisa Graff, Sarah Roderick, and Kyle Rainey. I just wanted you to come for one second so you can see them, so you can find them later on in the conference, introduce yourself to them. I'd encourage all of you students to do that. So thanks on that. And then the other two are purely logistical announcements. Uh, uh, the, there's going to be a discussion for those who are interested in law teaching, just in some of the logistics that, that are involved in that, uh, in room RB150 during the lunch. If you're not particularly interested in that, please, are uh, not really seriously interested in potentially thinking about something like that, it's not, it's not something that's going to be much interest. But for those of you who are, it's going to be in room RB150. Uh, and ask anybody coming out uh, in Northwestern where that is. It's right, right, right across the hall. And the, 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 final, uh, the final thing is at, uh, at 1.30, back in this room, there's going to be a 15-minute presentation on uh, something called Consources, which is about research on, constitu on, ori on original documents and constitutional law. And uh, uh, I, if for any of you who are interested, that will be in this room. There will be a PowerPoint slide at, at 1.30, and that's not on the, uh, on the, on the formal schedule. Either. So that's my announcement. So let's get back to the questions. All right. I think we're over on this side. Mr. Wax, how would you respond to the – I appreciate the value of an argument that's uh, both secular and rational in nature, but how would you respond to the criticism that in uh, appealing to tradition without principles necessarily, you use the same – type of argument that was used to justify laws against interracial marriage and even slavery, uh, things that were very long-standing institutions that risk disturbance by uh, the sort of upheaval you talk about, but that most all of us would probably agree to have been wrong or misguided institutions. Right. So this is sort of the argument that, you know, people make to say that any reference to tradition, any recourse to tradition as something worthy of deference really, uh, you know, proves too much because there are so many traditions that are rebarbative or, you know, now seem wholly unjust uh, and the like. So, you know, tradition should get no weight whatsoever. 
Uh, I think there's, you know, there's sort of no easy answer to that. The answer that I think would be given comes out of the defenders of deference for tradition, for Oakeshott, who say, look, we're not saying reason is banished from the scene. We're not saying that we can't sit and scrutinize our traditions, because with so many traditions, it's true, there are costs and benefits. Well, that's life, right? costs and benefits. There are uh, good things that tradition brings us, and then there are people who sacrifice and suffer. And as social life changes, it may be that the balance will change. And as Michael Moore would say, we have to make a considered judgment. I'll take the example of coverture, right? Michael Oakeshott actually talks about this. He talks about women's suffrage. He said, women's suffrage came at the end of sort of a long period in which many of the premises of, you know, strict separate spheres, women's complete exclusion from commercial activity, uh, their non-education, their subservience, had already been eroded on the ground, sort of in these incremental day-to-day -day ways in the face of the reality of American life. And then it just, we turned around and it didn't make sense anymore, right? And, and nobody's saying that doesn't happen because that happens as social institutions evolve, right? And it may be that gay marriage is in that mode, but, you know, there, that is different from it's really unfair, we really need to do this, uh, we need to just break with the past and introduce this radical change because it's right. Professor Seidman, response? Um, just a, uh, a very brief comment. Uh, I, I'm not, as is obvious, I'm not all that sympathetic with this argument from tradition to begin with, but if I were sympathetic with it, uh, th th there is a problem about how the tradition is characterized. So. Uh, one version of the gay rights struggle is that it's not abandoning a tradition, it's embracing a tradition. Uh, um, it, it is precisely because of the traditional value of marriage that gays want to participate in it. Over on this side. I'm Elizabeth, oops, sorry, sorry. I'm Elizabeth Harmer-Dion. I'm an Olam Fellow-in-Law at Harvard Law School. Um, my comment is addressed, actually I want to make an observation that's like, um, Professor Seidman's comment on, but Professor Wax is also welcome to comment on it. Uh, you had suggested, let me back up, I have the misfortune to study obscenity law, which means that I read a lot of radical feminists, and you had suggested that uh, homosexual marriage may actually be advantageous in terms of gender relationships. Not entirely clear. Um, and in the feminist community, there's on the I'm one hand, in, in the, what the feminist yeah. community, there is on the one hand support for the notion of what Andrew Dworkin called you know, radical lesbian separatism. But on the flip side, there's a concern that I think is valid that uh, homosexual men then become yet another sphere of exclusion for women. And in particular, the notion that two men can adopt a child, but the woman who's given birth to that child is then excluded from any support based on her contribution to that child's life. So I, I think it's not clear that homosexual relationships actually will contribute to equality between the sexes. Um, I, I actually think those are good points. Um, and um, so I, so I want to start and maybe finish by saying this is complicated. Um, 
Um, I, I do think, uh, I'm, I'm not going to recede from my position that um, the uh, example that um, gay relationships provide is a useful thing for uh, straight people to look at. Um, so I uh, just, I, I have a friend um, uh, who is in a, uh, a gay relationship. She, she's bisexual, but she's in a gay relationship, and she's in what's known as a butch femme relationship. And one of the things she says about it, and I think this is really interesting and instructive, being in a gay relationship allows her to indulge her, the femme side of her personality, much more than she would able to be able to do so in a straight relationship, precisely because um, it's with another woman. Um, so, um, so, so I think there is something to my argument. Now, um, is it nonetheless true that um, there are going to be complexities that develop um, uh, in terms of, for example, the, the mother of a child adopted by two men? Yes, of course. Uh, the only thing I would say about that is that uh, those complexities are going to be there whether or not we have gay marriage. Um, in the, uh, the, the world that I think Amy probably regrets, but that is nonetheless here and going to stay here, of, uh, of radical changes in reproductive technology, that is a problem um, in straight relationships as well. Okay, let me, let me address this because I'm so glad you said what, what you said. I would say that here's the story, right? Oh, brave new world that has such people in it. The New York Times Magazine had a cover story about this lesbian couple and they'd conscripted one of their friends to be the dad and there were all these wrangling about how much of a role he would have. He's sort of a supplicant father, right? Gets to see the daughter when they feel like it once in a while. I mean, what we're unleashing here is a radical social experiment with uncharted rules, okay? Which by definition is chaotic, right? In which the ordinary lines of parental authority are muddied beyond recognition. And if there's one thing we know about children, okay? They are little social conservatives. Right? They want regularity, predictability, clarity, and I can tell you as the mother of three, they need authority. Authority is an undervalued commodity, I think, in the raising of children. Benjamin Johns, Duquesne University. Uh, first of all, Professor Seidman, I completely agree with you about the pleasure of sex. I only wish I could get more of it. <laughs> My question is for uh, Professor Wax. You put a lot of weight into procreation and being able to procreate, being able to have children, the family lifestyle. My best friend's a woman, and she's infertile. She can't have children. How do I have the right to tell her that she can't get married any more than I have the right to tell my best friend who's also gay that he can't get married because they, neither one of them can have families? Right. Where's well, the distinction? Well, once again, this is the logic chopping of the exception erodes the rule. Of course, there are going to be infertile people. There are going to be older people who are beyond the age of fertility. We have pragmatic reasons for these bright line rules. We don't get into the details, uh, you know, sort of retail, case by case, for reasons that, you know, aren't necessarily principled. They're really practical, but that is radically different from uh, saying we are going to take this whole new category, this whole new practice, this whole new sort of group as a general matter and uh, 
license them. Now, once again, if you're into logic chopping, if you're into consistency, if you think those are the paramount values, you're not going to accept this. Well, I, I, I confess to being guilty of, of uh, being into logic. That's why I became a law professor. Um, <laughs> and consistency. I, I don't think it's logic chopping uh, to ask the question why it is that we're so concerned about this group when we're so unconcerned about um, other groups. Um, the, the, the fact of the matter is that uh, heterosexual marriage is in very bad shape. I think Amy agrees with that. Um, um, and so... Again, if we were going to start with the problem, the problem is not with a, a few, a, t a really tiny number of people who want to get into committed, stable relationships. The problem is with the huge number of people who are in uh, heterosexual relationships that, uh, that don't work. I also just can't resist um, observing that the rhetoric that Amy just used is almost identical to the rhetoric that Justice Bradley used in the Bradwell case. So Justice Bradley said, you know, there are exceptions. The exceptions are the few women who uh, have the career that uh, Amy Wax has, but we should not let the exceptions destroy the rule, and the rule is women are at home taking care of children. And that's what God intended, he added. Yes, over on this side. Uh, my name is Rolf von Merville from Washburn University in Topeka, Kansas. And um, didn't necessarily want to bring the debate to this level, but I believe it's already gotten there. So uh, if both of you seem to be operating on the assumption that homosexual sex is not necessarily destructive and can be beneficial, uh, particularly anal sodomy is by definition destructive and is it possible to have any benefit from that I assume that question is addressed to me uh, both of you I believe professor wax is a doctor I, as well I, I, just just <laughs> you know um, just from your asking the question I, I know I'm not going to be able to persuade you um, um, but let me, I'll, I will tell you uh, what I think about it, and you can take it for what it's worth. Uh, I'm not into anal sex, um, um, but I, I, I know people who are. They get pleasure from it. They um, not only get pleasure from it, but it is a way in which uh, they feel human connection and love. Um, um, I have a, a gay friend. He says, um, you know, my straight people, straight people say gay sex is disgusting. I think straight sex is disgusting. He's really disgusted by straight sex. All right. So he engages in, in gay sex. And for God's sake, who is he hurting? I mean, I'm not, you know, I don't. Um, understand or embrace the natural law critique of homosexuality. I, I just don't. Uh, I don't understand it. I don't understand the basis of it. Uh, so I don't think that homosexual sex is inherently bad or anything like that. Uh, and that's not really where I'm coming from here. Um, I personally don't see any distinction between anal and, and vaginal sex as such. Now, you know, vaginal sex produces babies, so that's always sort of dicey. 
and, and that's, I think, where we start thinking about, uh, you know, how people ought to regulate their conduct, because that's where it starts affecting others. Uh, so I, I really have nothing more to, to really add on that.